Our second lesson is very familiar to uh, all of you because it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the story of the triumphal entry of our Lord into the city of Jerusalem in the last week of his life, and this must be reckoned by Christians as the most important week in all of the history of the world. We will begin reading from Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 following. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him, and those who followed after, were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen. I don't usually watch the Academy Awards, but I did last week, <laughs> and you know why. I did because of Eric Little, and you've heard me speak about him before. I wouldn't be surprised if I don't speak about him some more from time to time. Eric Little, when I was a student at the University of Edinburgh, was everyone's hero in Scotland because of the great Christ-like life that he lived and the life that he gave. He's in, buried out in China in some unknown grave. And yet that man of God, that humble, great man of God, provided the inspiration for the film that won five, four or five of the Academy Awards this week. But the one that interested me the most was the one that was given for the best writer. Because uh, the man who introduced it started off with a quotation from Scripture. He said, in the beginning was the Word. And automatically I thought of an old Hebrew fable that God made man because he wanted to tell him a story. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word. And then this man went on to say, Moses went up into a mountain and he got ten words from God. And he brought them back for us to live by. But we did not stick to the script. 
and we ad-libbed, and we have gotten into great trouble. And so, he said, it's refreshing to find something that's written, that is inspiring, and that puts us back in the right track again. And then he called the name of the writer who had written the screen adaptation of the story of Chariots of Fire in the account of Eric Little, and he came to receive his Academy Award. Afterwards, when at the very conclusion, they presented the award for the best picture of the year, it seemed so ironical that this Cinderella film, the average Hollywood film cost $28 million to make. They had only five and a half million to make uh, Chariots of Fire. And yet, the motion picture Reds cost almost $60 million. And the picture voted as best picture of the year by the Academy was Chariots of Fire. The story of Harold Abrams and Eric Little. And you could see in Eric Little a satisfaction. You could see it because in that man there was a determination to please God. And Harold Abrams, there was always frustration because he sought to do so much for himself and to prove a point. But it was said of Little that no one could win with greater detachment nor uh, lose more graciously. He was an incredible uh, person. He ran for the glory of God. I love what he said to his sister when she tried to keep him from racing. And when I looked at the place where uh, they were filming this scene, I've been in that hall many times at New College in Edinburgh. And uh, she said to him that she was concerned about his running. And he took her aside outside so that others would not hear him correct his sister. And he loved her very much and was very respectful to her. And he said to her, God made me, and God made me fast. <laughs> and he said, not to use the gift that he gave me would be to hold it in contempt. And I run for his pleasure. And that's the difference in the satisfaction that came. One runner was running for fame and glory for himself and to prove a point about his race. Another runner was running for the pleasure of God. And so when he lost, he could lose and not go into a depression. And when he won, he won big and he won for the glory of the Lord. And you might be interested in knowing that that 400 meters that he won set all previous Olympic records at that time and the wonderful things of which he did. Now then, when we come to promotion, you see Hollywood with all of the glitter that it had to put out, all of the rented Mercedes Benz and all of the rented Rolls Royces and tuxedos and jewels and everything else that they had for this big production the other night. What would you do if you were going to pull off the introduction of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and bring him into his capital city. How would you do it? How would you go about it? 
Two famous persons had already entered that city that week in great parades. One of them was named Pilate, and one of them was named Herod. And they had gone that week to enter into the city of Jerusalem because the festival of the Passover had come. The Passover commemorated what we will commemorate as Christians on Thursday night at Monday Thursday Communion, the deliverance by God in a concrete, specific act of his people. And so in the Exodus, God brought his people out of bondage in the land of Egypt. And so on the cross, the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus is action, and the emphasis is upon the verb. This is my body broken for you. I love to see those Scots ministers break that crisp bread and you hear it crackle in the quietness of the church. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so there is something there for each of us to learn. But how will God introduce his people and his king of kings and lord of lords in contrast to the way in which the world does it? Well, let's take Pilate, for instance, first. A Pilate was appointed the Roman procurator. And Pilate had to go to this festival because he wanted to see that peace and order were maintained. And when Pilate went there, Pilate would have gone on the finest horse that the Roman army could have provided in that area or probably in a chariot pulled by a number of horses. The Romans were famous for the splendor with which their military people were attired. They had remarkably beautiful helmets with lovely plumes that came on the top of them uh, for the centurions. And a hundred uh, people would be in front of him and a hundred soldiers in back of him and he would ride into Jerusalem in his chariot or on his white horse. But there weren't many cheers for Pilate because the people of Jerusalem did not like Pilate. The Jewish people did not like being occupied and ruled over uh, by such a one as this. And yet Pilate that week would meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's interesting the fact that when Jesus met him, that Pilate was absolutely fascinated with him. It was the first time that Jesus had ever really met any important government official. Isn't that interesting? The first time that he had ever met any important government official or military figure. John the Baptist had faced Herod but Jesus, in the far provincial life of Galilee, had never even had the opportunity of coming across one of these big government people. He knew them only by hearsay. Once Jesus was saying that those who wear soft clothing live in king's palaces, and later on in the week, when he meets Pilate, who came in that day in a parade too, he met a man the fiber of whose conscience had been softened and relaxed. Pilate was one of those people 
who do not hesitate upon occasion to allow professional life to make short work of moral considerations. What occupied his mind was how to keep on good terms with the government so that one day he could retire and take his pension and live in a village someplace close to Rome in luxury with a big government stipend. He wanted simply to get out of this wretched place and take with him as much as he could. And I'm sure that when Jesus was led into his presence, he knew because he was a politician and all politicians know about jealousy and envy. And Matthew is careful to tell us that Pilate knew that it was for envy that they had delivered him unto him, that is, the Jews. But Jesus will meet Pilate that week. And Pilate will have the greatest opportunity and chance of his whole life But he will not listen to his better self and he will try to wash his hands of the whole responsibility of condemning an innocent man to death. Although he comes into the city in a big parade, he attracts attention but not love. The people see him, but they do not love him. The reason the film made such a success was that it made you feel good that there were some people of principle still living and that there was a time when people wanted to do good things and that makes a great difference and it didn't need the special effects the special effects took place inside the heart of the individual well so much for Pilate's entry into Jerusalem in his big fanfare. But even more significant would probably have been the entry of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was king, puppet king. He ruled because Rome put him in a place of authority and stood in back of him, very much like the Soviet Union does with a ruler in Poland today. They can put him in authority and put so many divisions in back of him, and they can declare martial law and do what they will. And when they speak of the church, you remember Joseph Stalin's famous comment to the Pope about the Pope? How many divisions does he have? Well, there are more Christians than some people realize. I followed very closely Pope John Paul II's visit to Poland. And he did one of the most incredibly sensitive and beautiful things that any man I think has ever done in Christian history. Do you know what he did? He went out to the place where Auschwitz, where all of those horrors took place in which people simply because they were Jews were incinerated were burned, cremated, men, women, and children. What could you possibly say at such a place as that? Pope John Paul II 
went to the place where the railroad track came into the death camp of Auschwitz. And he had an altar erected there. And he had mass, which is a recreation of the crucifixion. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. The only roadblock to the camp of death is that which Jesus Christ provided when he bore death for us upon the cross. And Herod Antipas, he would see Jesus that week too. He came into town. He was richer than Pilate. He had a far more palatial place than Pilate had to live. In fact, Pilate was envious of Herod. And they found that week that they could agree on one thing. That was, Pilate, in order to do some sort of favor to Herod, sent Jesus over to him to be judged. And when Jesus came into Herod's presence, this Herod Antipas, who had had John the Baptist's head cut off, we are told that Herod had longed to see Jesus because he wanted to see him perform some miracle, some magic trick. But the old Negro spiritual puts it beautifully. He never said a mumbling word, not a word, not a word, not a word. He never spoke to Herod. Sometimes people will say that they do not hear God. God's silence is God's judgment. When God will not speak, and you, you have refused to listen, then he takes away that light and his voice does not come. And so that's what happened. These are two who came. And now let's look at Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. It's told us in all four accounts of, the, of his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the Jews were yearning for a father like Abraham. They were yearning for a deliverer like Moses. They were yearning for a king like David, who had been their brightest star. And so that's why they shouted hosannas when Jesus came. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And because he had raised Lazarus from the dead, the crowds wanted to see him. And they came in large numbers. Always he feared you, someone said of the crowd. Always he feared you, for you knew him only as the man of loaves and fishes, he who raised Lazarus from the dead and did marvelous things who healed the lame and made the blind to see. And fleeing from you, he sought the solace of the garden. He must have known that one day you would cry, release unto us Barabbas, and fling your cruel words at him as he climbed Golgotha alone. Perhaps he knew that someday you would build creeds about him and lose him 
in massive structures of stone with costly windows and dignified ritual and eloquent preachers. While outside, he waited, sad and alone. Well, Jesus would not be moved by the fickleness of the crowd, but he did accept their acclamation. He accepted their recognition of him as the one who more than fulfilled the promise that was made to Abraham and the one that more than fulfilled and brought to pass what Moses had spoken about and the one who was the Messiah King like David that they all looked so eagerly to see. But how would he come into town? I love it that Jesus sends two of his disciples to go to Bethpage, and that's the only time Bethpage is mentioned in the Old Testament or the New Testament, just because there was a little donkey there that Jesus used. Maybe Montreat will make it. <laughs> a little village made the Old Testament and the New Testament just because there was a donkey there that Jesus rode. That's the only reason. Jesus knew someone there who had a little donkey. A donkey that was well-trained. A donkey that would have been comfortable to ride on. And Jesus sent two of his disciples, and it's sort of pitiful, they go to the owner, and Jesus said, go to the owner and tell them. Tell this owner that I have need of them. Both of them. The mother and the little colt. And so they went to the owner and Mark's account is precious. Mark says, the master told us to come here and to borrow the donkey and, and the colt, and we will bring them back immediately. Isn't that something? We'll bring them back immediately. I wish some people would do that with my books. Uh, they, uh, they, the, I will we'll bring them back immediately. They, they promised to do this. Well, they bring the donkey and the little colt to Jesus. And Jesus must have looked at the colt, and you can imagine his disciples around him, his apostles are there, and here's this little shiny donkey, beautiful mother donkey who had ridden many an old rabbi, who'd carried people into town, who knew how to walk gently and not get scared by crowds or children, throwing rocks or screaming. But here is a little colt on which never man sat. And as an old Texas boy who has been thrown higher than his head off a horse, it's hard to sit on one that never has been sat on before. <laughs> they don't like it. They're not used to it. But Jesus sat on the colt. My, wasn't that wonderful? And the colt loved it. And Jesus came into town. I've always thought of him as rather tall, the Lord Jesus. And yet his feet would have been dangling on the sides of that little donkey. And the people knew that he had done these tremendous miracles, and so they shout these hosannas, and they run out into the streets to see him, and they get a glimpse of him, 
And then that scripture from Zechariah 9 comes back to their mind that he shall come meek and lowly, riding not only upon a donkey, but on a colt. He fulfills. Matthew is full of that. We've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew and studying the life of Jesus. And you will find the expression over and over, this was done that it might be fulfilled. This was done that it might be fulfilled. This was done that it might be fulfilled. And this is the fulfilling of Scripture. This is the fulfilling of Scripture. And so, so they shout, Hosanna. And now let me tell you something. Hosanna does not mean praise the Lord. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hosanna means save us. So don't get them mixed up. If you're drowning, don't shout hallelujah. <laughs> shout Hosanna. <laughs> that, that means save us. Save me now. And you know that would have caused Herod to wonder. And if Pilate had his CIA out there listening, they came back and they said, Mr. Pilate, Mr. Governor, do you know what the crowd was saying? When he came in, the, man, we have never seen that big a crowd since we've been out here. And they were lined all up and down the street, and you know what they were saying? They were shouting, Hosanna. And Hosanna doesn't mean hooray. You know what that means? That means save us. Get these Romans off our back. We translated it. That's what it means. In Aramaic, it means save us. Save us now. Do something to help us. And he'll save them. But he'll save them from something bigger than the Romans. He's going to save them from death and sin and hell and despair. He will save those who will trust in him. And who will accept what gifts he brings, the gift of salvation. And so Jesus comes. And I'm thankful that he rode that little colt because that means he could use even me. If he could use that little old donkey. Think about the people he picked. Would you have picked Peter to be the chief spokesman of the apostles? The man who is going to deny him three times. And James and John, they were so fiery and thunderous that they got the name Sons of Thunder. Their Christian love was so gracious that they wanted to call down fire from heaven on a village that would not receive them. And yet Jesus can take the little donkey on which man had never sat and ride him, and he can take humble people and use them to his glory. He can take a shoe salesman like Dwight L. Moody and make him an evangelist who can put one hand on Great Britain and one hand on America and draw tens of thousands into faith in Christ so that we sing his hymns even till this day, the hymns that came out of those great revival meetings. Moody, take him and use him even in that way. When D.P. Thompson was writing his book on Eric Little, and I was there 
oh, 10 or 12 years ago in Scotland. I remember going down to Creef. He wrote the book and he couldn't even get anyone to publish it. He had to pay for it himself to get it published. But the Lord used that dedication and he still uses it today. And that means that there's a spot for each one of us. If he picks a village called Bethpage and puts it on the map because of that donkey, then he can pick you and me and make us to be useful in his service. And so the cords all come together from Abraham and from Moses and from David and Jesus fulfills them all. Save us. Save us now. Now then, we'll have some Bible studies this week and I hope you'll be reading in your own Bible how he goes into the temple and looks around and how he cleanses the temple again because religious business has a way of getting cluttered up with commercialism. And then he begins to tell some very interesting stories to the people who are there in that last week of his life. I love the one story with which I close because it's the one that makes me know that he will listen to me when I say Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And then I'll know he's more than just the prophet from Nazareth. But I'll know when he is risen from the dead that he is the son of God whom he claimed to be because the scriptures have been fulfilled. And he will have demonstrated to that Jewish nation which was disobedient. And he shriveled up a fig tree to show that they were disobedient and not fruitful. And then he tells a story about a man who had two sons that week. You remember that story? He said to the first one, son, go work in the vineyard. Those were his chosen people. And the son said, I will, sir. He said, I was thinking about that in my quiet time this morning, father. I was just thinking when I was reading my Bible, I've got to get out there and work in the vineyard. But he did not go. You ever known any Christians like that? All mouth, no work. And he came to the second and he said the same thing and he said, I will not go. He was impudent, arrogant, and rude. And yet afterwards, he regretted it. That means repentance. And there's nothing so refreshing as that. Afterwards, he regretted it. He thought about his father telling him to go work in the vineyard and he had been ornery and he hadn't done it and he regretted it. And he became meek in his heart and he went back and worked in the vineyard the rest of the day. And then Jesus said to all these leaders in the church, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the latter. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe in him. But the tax gatherers and the harlots did believe in him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterwards, 
so as to believe. Now remember this. It is better to finally believe what at first you could not say than to say at first what you will never believe. What about it? Do you really want a king? Our Father, it's a great comfort to us to know that the gospel appeals to our second thoughts and that you are willing to let us think it over and then to come back to you and that you are ready to receive us. Lord, help each one of us to realize that the Jesus Christ who entered the city on the donkey, the Jesus Christ the people loved and later were confused about, the Jesus Christ who stands before us right now here is actually the victor over sin and death and is victor over our sins and even our death and that he offers each of us the life, the love from his hands. Lord, give us the faith to receive your love and to claim it for our own hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.